Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Douglas Stewart talks about his book along listed debut novel, Shuggy Bane. Douglas Stewart was born and raised in Glasgow. After graduating from the Royal College of Art in London, he moved to New York City, where he began a career in fashion design. His work has appeared in The New Yorker and on Lit Hub, and his first novel, Shuggy Bane, which we're going to be talking about today, has also recently been longlisted for the Booker Prize. Douglas, welcome to Little Atoms. Oh, thank you for having me, Neil. So, first of all, how would you describe the novel? Well, the novel's actually probably quite hard to describe, but at its heart, I think it's a love story. It is a love story between a mother and a son who are both going through quite a difficult time as the city they live in and love, Glasgow, is decaying around them. Shuggy Bain is the portrait of the Bain family, who are really struggling to survive in 1980s Glasgow. And the mother of the family, Agnes Bain, is a beautiful, resourceful, smart woman who is also sort of consumed by lots of small wants. Uh, She has a very outsized sense of her own pride and models herself on a Glaswegian Elizabeth Taylor. Um, But Agnes, unfortunately, has married the wrong man, and she's married across sectarian lines, the Protestant taxi driver, Shug Bain. And as Shug sort of philanders his way across Glasgow, Agnes begins to slowly descend into her own addiction. After Shug actually brutally abandons Agnes and her three children in a North Lanarkshire coal mining town, he promises her a new start, a new life, and then he uses that as an opportunity to leave her. Then Agnes begins to sort of accelerate into her alcoholism. It's her three children who stay by her side, who try to save their mother from herself, but it's actually her youngest son, Shuggy, who really stays by his mother's side the longest. Uh, Shuggy, even in his own life, is struggling with acceptance and is sort of seen as the community around him because he is fussy, he is effeminate, he is very highly mannered, uh, he is seen as being no right. So really it's a love story between these two isolated souls. And the novel is called Shuggy Bane, he's the titular character, but as you've in your description just there, um, we spoke more about Agnes. The novel is arguably Agnes's story as much as it is Shuggy's. She's an incredible character, a a brilliant creation. Where does she come from? Oh, thank you. Um, Agnes is, you're right about it, sort of, you know, it could arguably be called Agnes Bain and not Shuggy. 
But um, I wanted to call it Shuggy Bane because of the sort of the idea that children are always their parents' hope. And Shuggy is the part of Agnes's story that really sort of pushes the hope through the book. Um, Agnes is a work of fiction, but she is so inspired by all the really strong Glaswegian mothers that I have always known. I grew up in Glasgow. Um, I grew up poor. I'm the queer son of a single mother. And my own mother struggled with alcoholism my entire life and then ultimately lost her battle with it when I was in high school. And so Agnes, in a way, is sort of inspired by my own mother, but really inspired by all the women that I sort of knew and grew up around. And I always say, you know, Glasgow is often thought of as a very masculine city because it's a very industrial city. But because I was raised by a single mother, I've always known the strength of the city to be its women. There is a lot of sort of strong maternalistic female characters in this novel, not just Agnes, Agnes' mother, Lizzie herself, and the other women on the estate that they sort of hang around with. All like amazing characters. But nonetheless, it almost seems like that strong, famous maternal side of those estates is nonetheless under the shadow of male violence constantly. Yeah, I mean, it was a really difficult... I don't think there's necessarily any good or bad people in the book. I think there's just people going through good and bad times. And a lot of what the book is about is about how people survive when the chips are down. But it is true that, you know, in the 80s in Glasgow, unemployment went up to about 26 to 28%, and it stayed there for about a generation. And I always knew from my own childhood that when men struggle, it's women and children that suffer first and worst. And it's true that often, I mean, it's very blunt, but, you know, you have to sort of like it or lump the situation that you are in, because that's... um, uh, one of the defining things about poverty is it it narrows your options, it narrows your ability to sort of get away or to sort of move towards something else. But I had wanted to write about the women of Glasgow because there are so many, obviously, momentous works of uh, Scottish fiction that are sort of based on the west coast of Scotland. I'm thinking about Alistair Gray, I'm thinking about James Kelman, I'm thinking about one of my favourite writers, Agnes Owens. But they always seem to focus on the, the man who was struggling during that time, or a man. And as a sort of a kid that grew up there and a gay kid whose entire universe was his mother, I just wanted to sort of put that on the page um, and really sort of show that relationship against that backdrop. But then also my entire universe was women because that's what happens, I think, often when you're you're the child of a single mother. And by the way, you know, the men never really say very much or have very much to say for themselves. And so all the interesting things and all the great sort of dialogue and conversation and just perspective on the world was given to me through the women in my life. You just mentioned, I mean, that these people in particular, the women and children, are not as often written about. Working class people often feature, you know, less in in literature anyway. And I think also what's fascinating about this story, especially, you know, when you talk about, I guess, perceived autobiographical elements that, that might feature in this story as opposed to your own experiences. I mean, I'm talking to you, you know, in, in New York today. I mentioned in, in the blurb at the beginning, you know, you ended up working in fashion. You got away from this life. The book is structured in a way that the end is also the beginning. And I think it's also fascinating that this is not a story unless, of course, you know, we're going to we're gonna meet Shuggy again in a, in a future volume this is not a story of somebody transcending their poverty we meet Shuggy at the beginning and he's you know living in a sad bed sit and working behind the deli counter of a supermarket yeah well I don't know that he necessarily doesn't transcend it um I think that's that's for the reader to sort of take on well in other ways perhaps perhaps yeah I mean perhaps you know not sort of like economically but but certainly perhaps 
he comes to he start he's beginning by the end of the book he's beginning to come to terms with who he is i guess yeah and i and i think that's certainly true about the character you know what i wanted to show through the echoes of it through agnes and then shuggy actually starts the conversation but then even looking back in the heart of the book there is a scene where lizzie agnes's mother has actually been quite hard on agnes through the first half of the book she sees agnes's addiction as just a willfulness almost or why don't you just give yourself a shake and behave the way you should and of course we know that addiction is so much more than that but then we see lizzie actually in the same sort of situation as we see shuggy and then we see agnes and we are sort of shown that lizzie also knows what it takes to survive and will do whatever it is to survive and that's some of that is the cycle of poverty it's hard to break it's hard to sort of improve your life for the next generation but then also some of that is is just the resilience of the human spirit and also just the sort of the defiance to succumb to it you will do what it takes to survive and i think that's that's quite a beautiful thing in terms of my own sort of story you had mentioned about how i had sort of gotten away from it it was never i never think of it in those terms neil i never thought that i'd gotten away because as i'd said you know i my mother died when i was in school and i never knew my father and so by the time i became a young man i was just sort of untested I had nothing holding me anywhere, Glasgow or London or the moon. And so all that really happened to me was I was kind of blown away. And whenever there was an opportunity for work or to study that I could have and it was in front of me, I just said, yes, I'll do it. I'll do that. I'll do that. And I'm so grateful that it ultimately brought me to New York, but it was never with an intention to, to get away. I was interested that I mean I, I grew up in a in a similar background uh, although no in any way near as much poverty but certainly in a sort of you know working class council estate background in the Midlands and one of the things that was sort of very discouraged strangely amongst my peers was education and 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 the idea that you could escape that life through education and it was interesting in the, in the story that both Leek Shuggy's brother and Shuggy himself both have a sort of difficult relationship with the possibility that they could mm-hmm. transcend their backgrounds through education. Yeah. I I mean, just to talk personally about myself and then about the book, I'm the first person in my family too who also went to college. And part of that as a young man was... I was the generation that sort of came of age at the end of the 80s, at the beginning of the 90s. And so I'd seen my father and my uncles and all the men on the house and scheme put out of work with nowhere to go. It was too late to pivot to more training or to something else. And when they were turned away from shipbuilding, they couldn't go into coal, they couldn't go into steel because it was all closing in succession. And that sort of, in my own life, my also decimated my older brother and my brother-in-law and everyone else because they had been guaranteed this sort of very honest, hardworking life in the trades. I mean, we were all happy to do that. But just because I was a couple of years younger, I saw the, I could see the effect that it had on them and sort of see how they had sort of been left without options because the thing they thought was going to happen just wouldn't be able to happen. And so I had no idea what education was. And actually my own education was so, it was just so disjointed. I mean, between sort of some bullying that I went through, between having to miss a lot of school to look after my mother and then just some other things, the piece that wasn't inside me, my education was really sort of disjointed but by the time it came to leave school there was nowhere else for me to go and so I was lucky to sort of be trained in textiles and textile manufacturing thinking that was a good art-based trade to take me in and and education has certainly absolutely changed everything in my life and it's really sort of transformed and given me the options I've been talking to you about and I think I only had the benefit of that because I could see how much the men in my family were struggling. 
just back to one of the one of the characters in the book for a moment. We've talked about Agnes and Shuggy. I want to talk about Big Shug, uh, Shuggy's father, Agnes's second husband. He's, as you said, there's you know nobody in this book is a sort of out and out monster. He's depicted behaving the way he does through circumstance and he's a you know he's he's the villain of the book but at the same time he's you can understand why people are attracted to him he's charismatic he's charming and then of course he's violent tell us something more about who he is yeah the character of big shug came to me because i sort of just knew a lot of men like this i was always dazzled as a young man that very plain looking men could always get beautiful women just by sort of turning their charm all the way up and as close as although there's probably no monsters in the book shug is about as close as we come to one i think he's just a master manipulator and i wanted to have a man in the book who contrasted very sharply with a character that appears later called Eugene, but also someone who doesn't think very much of women. And even though he's not worth very much himself, he sort of uses women in a way just to get his own ends and his own gains. I was thinking an awful lot in writing the book about uh, Alexander Trocky's young Adam and Mm. with Joe the Barge Hand, who sort of also is this sort of master user. He's a little bit more sort of maybe ham-fisted about it and doesn't have such a grand architectural plan of how he's using people, perhaps. And he's more opportunistic, I guess, is the word. But he also is one of those men who just uses women in a way with such little regard. And I was thinking a lot about that when I was writing the character of Shug, because I also think, to go back to our other conversation, women of my mother's generation and women that I grew up around really oftentimes had to like it or lump it. And if you married the wrong man, it was a difficult thing to sort of get out of that marriage because of uh, religious expectations. But it was also a difficult thing to get out of that marriage because of socioeconomic needs. You know, when the tent pole of the week is the payday on Friday and your husband brings home his wages, it's really hard to like build a life or build a family around it if that's sort of swept away. And certainly I always knew sort of growing up um, how hard it was for my mum as a single mother. And I think Shug as a character exploits that right exploits almost the um the trap that the women in his life are in and of course as you've already mentioned agnes marries across religious lines so she also has this you know this idea i guess that everybody expects like lizzie is always criticizing her for marrying big jug in the first place so of course she always has this you know i guess doesn't want to hear i told you so in the way that she continues to put up with his behaviour, put up with his violence, put up with his philandering. Tell me some more about growing up in, in Glasgow in at this period of time, you know, how important these sort of like the Protestant Catholic thing was. Yeah, I mean, actually, it was fascinating writing the book because I found that I could talk about sectarianism really clearly, what it felt like, what it felt like to characters when they were affected by it, you know, sort of almost how it smelled and tasted, if it could smell and taste of something. But then I realized as a man, I didn't know why, um, because it is quite a sort of it's a really funny thing to sort of divide Catholics and Protestants who are identical. They're both white, they're both Christian, they're both of the same socioeconomic background, but that's like the most microscopic of division and it pulls them apart. And so I actually had to go away and sort of like research the origins of sectarianism and that brought you into like Irish immigration and everything else that affected Glasgow and the unions and all these other things. But sectarianism for me as an experience happened on different sort of frequencies and wavelengths. I am the child of a sort of mixed marriage, I guess you would say. My mother was Catholic, my father was Protestant. And so on most days there would just be sort of 
what they would think of as banter over the kitchen table, but now we would think of as hate speech. And they would just say some atrocious things to each other. And sometimes it was funny, sometimes it wasn't, but it was certainly, you know, it was always present. And then as a young man growing up in the housing schemes around Glasgow, you're very quickly divided into whether you go to the Catholic school or the Protestant school. And then as you start to come up within that, one of the housing estates I grew up on, you were expected to fight for a territorial gang. And that gang, of course, is organized around me being a Protestant. And we would go to the other housing scheme. We would cross a motorway bridge. We would go over into Springburn and we would have these sort of like ranging wars with Catholics for no other reason than we were sort of divided along along these lines. But um, sectarianism is definitely something that I think plays a part in most working class lives. And you'll also know that, or maybe you don't know, but Glasgow has the second largest Orange March after Belfast. And I was fascinated to find that out when I actually did research because I think that's just staggering. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Douglas Stewart, and we're talking about his debut novel, Shuggy Bane. And Douglas, I just want to think back again to you you growing up at this period of time through the 1980s and all of that change that was going on in Glasgow for, particularly for working class men, but of course, therefore, for, you know, for all working class families. And just to sort of talk about for a bit what the closures of the shipyards, the closures of the mines, what that did to family life across the city. Yeah. So, I mean, Glasgow's a city with beautiful strata. It has some incredible culture. It has incredible wealth. But it is sort of determined by the working class families at the bottom, I think. I think that's the, probably the the bulk of the population. And you know, even within my own family, we were always a very proudly working class family. My All the women in my family went out to work, all the men went out to work. And every week you would bring home your paycheck and and we were happy we had what we needed and, and it was fine. But probably within sort of the end of the 70s and the early 80s, you start to see sort of all of the heavy industry closing, whether it was the sort of the railway works, whether it was the shipbuilding on the Clyde, uh, whether it was the coal mining out in North Lanarkshire or the steel in Ravenscraig. And I think from my perspective, because I was the son of a single mother, ultimately, after her own marriage dissolved, you know, so much was put on to what a man would bring home on a Friday or what he could used to provide for his family even to the point where like there's so many stories about you know my granny would let my granddad go and drink some of his wages on a friday but she would always set her watch so she would go dig him out of the pub by 8 p.m on a friday night so he didn't drink too much but she would never go before eight because she had to allow him those two hours and so it was really a central point of the week and men relied on it but then also women relied on it you know they were happy to build families and get by on that and so when you sort of take that away and you have all this unemployment that affects fathers and sons then I just it's hard to say because I only exist in one slice of time but I felt very much like you know families just started to lose their ways and then I remember just being sort of part of a generation that seemed to all be governed by single mothers whereas the generation a little older than me and then the generation after me seemed to still come from um, dual parent families and I think that's because when the men were unable to provide the women sort of went oh I don't know why I want to be with you anymore you know and it and it became a little bit like that and so um, it was such a time of change in the city. Can we talk a little bit about then you know the after this starts to happen, Shug abandons. They actually move out. I want to talk about the the, the ex pit village and yeah. what that would have been like that they they move out to where Shug finally abandons the family and Agnes basically well I mean doesn't begin but you know intensifies her her descent into addiction and, and alcoholism. Tell us something about that pit village as described in the book because it's just incredibly bleak. Oh, well, I'll tell you about the pit village, but it's an absolute fiction is the first thing. But I'll tell you about that in a second. But I think Agnes's wants are incredibly small. You know, she's living at the beginning of the book in the Sight Hill Towers with her mother and father, her husband and her three kids. And so it's quite, Shug's abandonment of her is quite brutal because all she really wants is a front door of her own, finally, after spending her years in tenement closes or in high rises. And so when he takes her to North Lanarkshire and takes her to the fictitious village of Pithead, her hopes are so high and 
you know, and she also feels great that maybe this will save her marriage and also this is what she's been looking for. And so when Shug sort of takes her there and abandons her, and then he abandons her so that almost no one else can have her after him. Um, it's the cruelest of abandonments. It's really hard on Agnes. Um, Pithead, for me, is a totally fictitious place. I was really inspired by uh, the movies of Bill Douglas. I don't know if you've ever seen. He does a trilogy, and there's one in the center of it called My Ain Folk, which looks at sort of... Uh, a very hand-to-mouth existence in coal mining villages across the central belt of Scotland. And so when I was thinking about sort of creating Pithead, I was thinking very much of that. But the thing about Pithead is, you know, Agnes, although she is identical to all the women around her, I mean, she is actually a Catholic single mother or a, or a mother, um, as the other women are, she almost defies being portrayed like that. And so she hides behind her pride and her vanity, which of course just separates her from people who perhaps could help her or perhaps could sort of um, stand by her. And so it's really about that sort of thing, about not being able to fit in or seeing yourself as better. We talk about the process of writing. This is your debut novel. Let's talk about the process of how this novel came together. And I guess I want to talk also about, again, bearing in mind that this is the background you come from yourself, just writing about this stuff, writing about violence, alcoholism, misogyny. This is, it's hard read in places and it must have been a lot of hard memories. Yeah, I, I definitely can't lie. It was hard to read in places, but ultimately I think if you can take trauma and turn it into art, or if you can take trauma and release it onto the page, I think it's healing. And so I cried a lot when I was writing it, but ultimately at the end of it, I felt better for having written it. Now it is a work of fiction, Neil, I'll say that again, because very quickly when I sat down to write the book about 12 years ago, the characters just eclipsed me. They just sort of started to dwarf me and their voices and their experiences, you'll know from reading the book that it spans quite a period of time and it also takes in a real chorus of sort of experience. And for me, as a little boy at the center of all that, I couldn't contain all of that. And as soon as I'd sort of started the characters and pushed them onto the page, they suddenly just came in with a life of their own. And, and I almost had to, as a writer, let them do that. But I wrote the book over 10 years and I talk a lot about, you know, having to work. Uh, I do work in fashion, so I had to write around my day job, I guess you would say. But also it took 10 years because I was just loving sort of spending time with the characters and with the world. I was writing it only for me because I didn't ever know if it would be published. I didn't ever know if I would be a published writer. And so I put no pressure on myself and I just wrote what I saw and I wrote what I felt and I wrote what I loved. In a lot of ways, that's why it took 10 years because I just couldn't let go. But uh, the process was sort of really about letting the characters tell me. The book actually, the first draft of it, came out of uh, chronological order. So I actually began in the center of the book and then wrote the scenes as they sort of appeared before me. And just one more question for me, and then I'll, I'll get you to read a bit of Sugar Bane for us, if you would. The book's been, it's a debut novel, it's been long-listed for the booker. What did that mean when you heard that news? Oh, I mean, it means everything. It was so unexpected and... Uh, it's just wonderful news. But, you know, I think when you write a book, you almost can't ever hope for things like that because the chances are you're just not going to be on that list or any prize list. And so the job or the, the goal is, is just to focus on writing through good news and bad news and be able to sort of come back to the page. And when I wrote the book, I just didn't have any expectations for it at all, Neil. And so this is, you know, this is just mind blowing. I'm so honored. And then, of course, it 
transitions into a little bit of anxiety where you're like, I hope I represent Scotland well, and I hope I, you know, I hope I, I hope I make everybody proud. And so, but it's fantastic. The reading I'd like to do for you today, Neil, is actually from the heart of the book. This appears about halfway through the book, and I think it's a lovely vignette of Shuggy and Agnes's relationship. Agnes, after drinking for several years, has found this real period of sobriety. And Shuggy, like most children, has been waiting for it and hoping for it. And he can't quite articulate it, but he certainly can feel this change in his mother. And so this is where we're entering the period of hope. Every weekday before the last bell, Shuggy's guts would tighten and he would raise his hand and ask most politely to be excused. Doe-faced Father Ewan would inwardly curse the little boy who seemed regular as clockwork. At first he would ask the boy to wait, just wait the extra 15 minutes till the school day was finished. Shuggy, always biddable, would nod with a wince and sit cocked slightly to the side, looking to be in genuine, desperate need. His wincing and huffing would soon start to distract the other children, and the father would acquiesce. Later, in the staff room, the soft-middled father would joke about what this miner's diet of boiled cabbage and ground mince might do for the clergy. The polite little boy, the only one who clearly knew the difference between may I and can I, had been getting the cramps at quarter past three almost every afternoon of the school year. Father Ewan had come to set his watch by it. So Shuggy would spend the last minutes of the school day sat on the low toilet. He would take his trousers down, only to be safe, but he came to know it was indigestion. It was the burning bile of anticipation, the rising fear of what might lie at home. Agnes had gotten sober many times before, but the cramps had never really completely gone away. To Shuggy, the stretches of sobriety were fleeting and unpredictable and not to be fully enjoyed. As with any good weather, there was always more rain on the other side. To have marked her sobriety in days was like watching a happy weekend bleed by. When you watched it, it was always too short, so he just stopped counting. The boy could not remember the change in himself. At what point the cramps died away and things became different was unclear. He could remember coming home from school one Friday in November and standing outside the house as he always did. Every small detail of the house told of what lay within. This evening, the curtains were drawn tight against the cold and the lamps were on. His stomach lifted in hope. Shuggy opened the front door a crack, just enough so he could hear the hum of the house. He knew what to listen for. Wailing and crying foretold a bad night. She would want to hold him in her arms and tell him stories of the men who had broken her. If there was the sound of country guitars and sad melancholy singing, then the warm moistness of shit would start to wet his underpants. To hear his mother on the telephone was not always a bad sign. He had to creep in between the front door and the draft door to listen very closely to the tone of her voice, push his ear right against the cold dimpled glass and hold his breath. She didn't have to be crying or screaming or slurring her words for the drink to be in her. It could still be there. It made her overly polite, a false Milgai accent full of long syllabled words. Her lips would pull away from her front teeth and she would use words like certainly and unfortunately. These were the worst sounds to hear. Agnes was mourning her losses, but still too far from unconsciousness. She would sit him down and tell him her stories, only this time she would be angry and not sad. With a packet of half-smoked cigarettes beside her, she would glide her finger through the phone book and make him dial the telephone numbers that she read aloud. 554-6339. Holding the receiver in his hand, the boy would listen to the chirp-chirp and hope that no one would answer. He grew ashen as a voice came on the other line. Hello? said the stranger. Oh, hello. I'm terribly sorry to bother you. Agnes would nod her approval from the armchair. I'm looking for someone called Mr. Cam McCallum. Who? asked the voice. 
Cam McCallum, repeated the boy. He lived in Deniston between 1967 and 1971. He was a bus conductor in the East End, going between George Square and Shettleston. He had a sister named Renee, who married a man named Jock. The voice, confused at this oddly detailed information, would say, Sorry, son, there's no Cam McCallum who lives here. I see. Thank you very much, sir. I am sorry to have bothered you. Agnes would hiss with disgust from the front room and make him phone the next McCallum in the book. It was worse when they found who Agnes was looking for. The man on the other line would say, Who is this? I'm Cam McCallum. What do yous want? The boy's heart would sink. Oh, I see. Could you please just hold on for a minute, Mr. McCallum? I'm transferring your call. Agnes's eyebrows raised incredulously. Is that him? The boy would cup his hand over the receiver and nod. He would hand the telephone to her like an obedient secretary, and Agnes would arrange herself as if Mr. McCallum could see her through the phone. With a fresh cigarette between her long fingers, she would lift the receiver to her mouth. You bastard, she hissed as an introduction. Hello, who is this? You dirty fucking whore master of a bastard. The man would hang up eventually. He always did. Agnes would take a long draw on her cigarette and then a long pull on the old tea mug. She would stab the redial button on the telephone and smile as it quickly connected her. Don't you hang up on me. Don't you dare hang up on me. Who the fuck is this? Did you think you would get away with it, eh? The things you did to that young lassie, you bad bastard. There's not a bleeding heart in you, is there? Cam McCallum would hang up again, and if he were wise, he would wrench his telephone from the wall. Agnes slid her finger through the phone book like it was a menu, looking for something to fill her hunger. She moved on alphabetically to the very next man who'd wronged her. Brendan McGowan. Now wait till I tell you about this, Scunner. She turned to Shuggy, with the receiver crooked under her chin. Losing me was the biggest mistake he ever made. So I've been talking to Douglas Stewart about his debut novel, Shuggy Bane, which is out now in the UK from Picador. Douglas, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you so much for having me, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.